You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thank you, Ms. Sherilyn, for that. Well, before we have the special this morning, let's stand and we'll read our, our passage this morning for the preaching. First John chapter 2, as you stand in honor of the reading of God's word today, just out of respect for his word. First John chapter 2, and we will read. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in First John. Last week we took a mini departure and went to the book of Romans chapter 6. And then tonight, or this morning, we will be in 1 John chapter 2. And we'll read the first six verses. Again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That was our message subject a couple of weeks ago about how Jesus Christ is our representative to God when we sin. And I'm so thankful for that truth. Still mulling that one over in my own mind. Verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word In him verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Today we'll be preaching, I've I've titled the message, Just the Facts, ma'am. I don't know if that phrase means anything to you. Just the Facts. And uh, we'll be looking at some evidence. First John chapter 2 is where we are this morning. I, was, I had a funny experience with my son recently. And I, I, I figure to get people's attention right up front, you start talking about kids. And they kind of perk up a little bit. My son, if you've been around him for any length of time, then you know that he is, he's the only boy of five children. We have four, he has four older sisters. And Jace is the caboose, and he's the youngest, so he's got really five mothers at home that try to tell him what to do all the time. So naturally, I, I figured whenever we, whenever we found out we were having a, a boy as our fifth child, I knew either I really have to work with him to not try to, you know, be like his sisters too much, or, or he's going to not want to have anything to do with any girl the rest of his life. And honestly, he's leaning a little bit more toward option B. Jace is all boy. He, he, he likes things that are all boy. And, and because of that, we have a good relationship since uh, we're the only two boys in the family. So he really leans on me a lot. And he, he follows me and he, he wants to be just like me. Honestly, it, there's a lot of pressure. But everything I do, he thinks is, the, is just the best. And I was telling somebody when, I, when we got married, this is a little embarrassing... I was young. Um, when we got married, though, my wife and I got married, and, and I wanted to be silly um, af- at the wedding whenever um, her, her dad married us, and her dad's a pastor, and, and I wanted to be a little silly to kind of take a little bit of the edge off, and, 
So when we kissed, they said, you may kiss the bride. Um, I kissed her, but then I lifted my leg up just a little bit, like, you know, one of those, one of those things like this. Like <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, okay? I was telling somebody that story because everyone started laughing, and, and uh, I was just being silly, but I was telling somebody that story, and Jace heard me telling that story. And a few days later, after I had told that story, I heard him telling one of his sisters that when he gets married, (laughs) when he kisses his wife, he's going to lift his leg. (laughs) And you know, that's silly, it's funny, but it kind of, it really does prove the point um, that family traits, I mean, traits run in the family. And I'm thankful that my son wants to be like me. I'm thankful that he wants to pattern his life after me. I'm thankful that there are things in my life that he wants to to do because dad does them. But honestly, if my son does that at his wedding, that that isn't nearly the proof um, that he's my son as when you look at him. See, lifting your leg when you get kissed, it's a silly little thing. But when you look at my son and you look at me, I'm told you can tell that he's my son. And there are certain traits, family traits, that are more significant than other traits. For instance, you know, the way that somebody looks, my son looks a lot like me. If you have children, they may look a lot like you. That's one characteristic that's almost undeniable. And you may, they may have other characteristics. Like they may, for instance, like the same team that you like. Uh, if you, I'm, I'm a, I, I admitted this my first Sunday, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, and you still voted me into the church, and I'm thankful for that. Um, if my son grows up liking the Dallas Cowboys, I mean, he's in for a life of frustration, first of all, but second of all, I mean, yeah, that proves that he's part of the family because that's a family team, but it's not nearly as convincing as when you look at him. There are certain traits about my son that are more convincing or more significant. Uh, no, there are certain traits, like certain personality features or, or traits. It, when someone has similar personalities, or, or I was speaking with somebody to, this week, just two sisters, and when they talk, you can't really tell them apart. They sound so much alike. That's a significant trait. That's much more significant than, well, they like the, they like the same restaurant. There are a lot of people could like the same restaurant, but when it comes down to how you talk and how you, how you sound when you talk, that's much more convincing that you're part of the family. And, and this is a similar concept to what John is dealing with in our text today, in that there are some traits in God's family that are more significant than others. In chapter 1, we were talking about uh, different tr- family traits, and we were talking about having fellowship with God, and that you have joy because of that fellowship. That's a convincing trait. You don't just have joy in our culture just for no reason. Another trait that was convincing was that if you're part of God's family, you walk in the light because God is in the light. If you're walking in God's light, that's a pretty convincing family trait. Another convincing trait is that there in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's a convincing family trait. To confess your sin so that you can have a right relationship with God, um, that's a significant trait. And that's much bigger than some other traits could be. And as we get into chapter 2, we start to see another 
one of the traits that, that John is saying is this is a significant trait. If you're a member of the family, if you bear the family trademarks and characteristics, uh, there is something else that is significant, and that is obedience. You know, you can say I'm part of the family, but if your life doesn't signify or if it doesn't point to obedience to God's word, you may have a tough time convincing people. And John's trying to provide some assurance to God's people. And I want to take a step back. You know, I, I was reading um, an excerpt from a book, How to Read a Book is what it's called. And it tells you the questions to ask. And you know the who's and the what's and the where's and the why's and, and the when and the how. And, and I was thinking about the why of 1 John. And as I thought about it, it sure does seem to me that John is trying to provide some assurance to God's people. He talked very often, and we mentioned this at the, at the beginning of the series, he talks very often about what you know and being assured of things. And if you read the rest of the book, you begin to realize there are some things working against the family, God's family, that has caused them to doubt some things about their position in Christ. Uh, if, look over at chapter 2, verse 19. There, uh, we see here in verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us... They would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So we, we know based upon what John writes there in verse 19 that there were some that had been part of the family. And if John, John doesn't, it doesn't say, but if he's writing to a church or, or, or churches, there were some that were part of them, but they had since gone out. And John is saying, there were some that used to be part of you and now that they've left and then you have to assume they weren't part of you at all at the beginning. And so some that used to be part of this church had left holes in, in the family and, and, and doubts in their minds. And so look at chapter 4, verse 1. Just trying to give you an idea of why John might be writing these things. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirit, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So we can assume by that verse that there are some that are false teachers. They're teaching things that are contrary to God's word. And, and I, I think we could start connecting the two, that there were some that used to be part of the family or, or part of whatever group or church they were in. They had gone out, and now, now John in chapter 4 is warning about false prophets. So we have to assume that, that he's warning them about things that were affecting their thinking. There are false teachers, false prophets. They left and they were causing trouble with the family. Look at chapter 3. Back over to chapter 3, verse 7. He says, little children, let no man deceive you. So we can assume by that that some were trying to deceive the family. I mean, this is just logic. It's just reason. I'm not reading too much into this. Little children, let no man deceive you. And then he says this important phrase. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he, the Father, is righteous. So very clearly, he's saying that there, there, if you read the book, there are some false teachers out there. They used to be from you, but they've gone out, and, and they are trying to deceive you. But what John is saying is, though, it's very clear, though, as you're trying to discern who to listen to, even though it's affecting how you're thinking and you're doubting some things, just know this, that he that, is right, he that hath righteousness is righteous. So in the end, when you're trying to discern the ones that have gone out of you and the things that they're teaching you and the doubts that they're creating, 
John says, just look at their life. Stop and consider, do they have righteousness? Does their life reflect the righteousness of God? And if it does, then you can assume if they have righteousness, that they are righteous. And in the end, let that be your discerner for you. Because if they were part of the family, they would have family traits. If they were part of the family, you could tell by looking at them. The assumption is that these false, deceptive teachers were never truly part of the family in the first place based on the fact that they don't bear the family marks. And when you start to think of it in terms of this context, then it starts to make sense even more what he's talking about. When, 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 if that's the setting to which John is writing, then we can assume, we start to apply some of the warnings that he's given them, and we start to say, oh, okay, now I see why he said that. I see why back in verse 6 he said, if, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Because it makes me wonder if those false prophets that left, if they were saying, oh yeah, we have fellowship, but they were walking in darkness. It makes you wonder if he's talking about false teachers when in 1 verse 8, when he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Makes you think, well, maybe he's talking about those false teachers. Makes you think how in verse 10, if it says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It makes you start to wonder, well, there were some, those false teachers, that were saying they hadn't sinned, and they were making God a liar. But here in our text in verse 4, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. So it makes you wonder, if John is applying these truths to people that were false teachers, that had left the group, and were now saying these things, and John is simply saying, no, look at the evidence. I want you to stop all the things that are being said, all the doubts that are in your mind, the lack of assurance you have. I want you just to ignore that for a minute and I want you to consider what's the evidence say. See, based on his writing, we can assume pretty safely that the, the, Peter, the, the people that John was writing to were starting to lose confidence. You know, for he... And so pay attention. Pay attention. Don't lose focus this morning. I'm trying to set this up in an important way They were starting to lose confidence and they needed assurance. So I'm going to summarize again. Here's this family that John's writing to. And there were those that used to be part of the family, but they had left and they were trying to deceive them. And they were saying these things that couldn't be true. But the family was starting to doubt their position. They were losing assurance. They were starting to doubt themselves. And John knows that it's a very important time for the, for the folks here in the first John in his letter. He knows it's a very important time for him to recapture their attention and take them back to the basics. Because honestly, you can't think very clearly when you have emotion. You can't think very clearly when you're hurt. You can't think very clearly when you're afraid. You cannot think very clearly when you're confused. You can't think very clearly when you're under pressure. Have you ever been in a situation and you had to do something really quickly that requires your attention and there's pressure mounting? I mean, it's like playing the minute to win it games back with the young people. You have a minute to fulfill this task and if I was doing it with now without a timer and without people asking me, sure, I can stack cups on top of each other. It's easy. But when you get under pressure, it changes everything. And that's what the people that John was writing to were dealing with. They have pressure. They have deceit. They have people telling them things that aren't true. And it's like John just says, whoa, 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 wait. Step back. 
I want you to stop and stop confusing the process and I just want you to simply look at the evidence. And it's if John works for the FBI. It's as if John is a lawyer in a courtroom and he's presenting evidence. He's just looking for the facts. Like the old Dragnet show, Sergeant Joe Friday. And this is well, way before many, most many of your time. But he said, just the facts, ma'am. He didn't want to mess around with all the speculation. He didn't want to mess around with what people thought. He didn't want to mess around with preconceived ideas. He wasn't jumping to conclusions. All he wanted was to look for the facts. We just need the facts, ma'am. We just want to get down to the facts because those are the cold, hard facts that will help convince us of the things that are really true. What does the evidence say? Now, just this week, my wife and I and the family, we went down to Oklahoma and, and uh, on our, we, we drove through the night to get there for a funeral. But the, the night that we were driving, that night before, there, there had been a hailstorm. So we have a contract on the house. We're supposed to sign paperwork Thursday and then the other folks were supposed to finish their paperwork this Tuesday. So we're like, okay, everything's going to be good. This is great. It's done. We can finally move on. Yeah, but a hailstorm came through. So we have a contract on the house and, and they're supposed to close and this hailstorm comes through and it damages the roof of our home on Tuesday night. And at 8.30 that next morning, the buyers were like, oh, we can get a new roof out of this. So they were out there looking at it, and they had a roofer with them. And, and in our minds, you know, our hearts sank. Because we're thinking, you know, we're ready to move forward. We're ready to be done with this. And now it looks like we may have to buy a new roof, and, and we have to pay a pretty hefty deductible for this. And, and we're thinking, well, I don't want to just take their word for it. So what did I do? Well, I called a roofer. And I called another roofer. And I called another roofer because I wanted somebody to tell me what I wanted to hear. And I called uh, our insurance. And, and I called two men in our church that have construction experience that know about these things. And I said, before I just say, yeah, we'll fork over money to buy a new roof for people we've never met, a roof we won't even get to enjoy, we'll pay for them to have a roof. Well, before I do that, I want the facts. I want somebody that can climb on a roof like the Everett's can. And I want them to say, yes, there's hail damage here, there's hail damage here. I'm not just going to say, yeah, here's a few thousand dollars, go get yourself a roof. I want proof, I want facts. I want somebody to show me in writing, yes, there's damage, yes, it needs a new roof, yes, you need to take, to take this step in order to finish selling your house. And you know what, For, until we got those numbers, we weren't convinced but when the numbers came back and the roofer said, yes, there's damage, and here's the, here's the estimate from the insurance adjuster, then we say, okay, well, the evidence is there. We can move forward. It's fine. We're not going to dispute the numbers. We're not going to dispute the evidence because in the end, evidence is what we need. And that's what John is saying. He said, stop listening to the lies. They're deceiving you. They're lying to you. They're telling you things that aren't true. They're trying to convince you of something that isn't reality. And John is saying, just step back. Forget the false teachers. Forget the deception. Forget the things they're trying to convince you of. And just look at the facts. He that, is righteous, he that hath righteousness is righteous. Just look and see the facts. What do they say? Get down to the basics. What does the evidence say? You know, and, and I was thinking about this. There are three forms of assurance. If you think about it in the Bible. And the three forms of knowing your position in Christ. And, 
and I was thinking there's the, the cognitive way. Someone, I read a commentator talking about these, but this is basically the cognitive is what you know. I have assurance that I'm saved because I have the promise of God's word that says if I receive Christ as my Savior by faith, then I can be saved. So based on the promises of Scripture, I have assurance that I am okay in my position in Christ because the Bible says so. So that, I know that. That's cognitive. There's also the subjective, the subjective proof or the subjective evidence. And this is based on Romans 8, verse 16, I believe it is. It says, The Spirit, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This assurance comes by the witness of the Holy Spirit. So we have the cognitive assurance that God's word has a promise and and he fulfills his promises when we act on faith. The second assurance is a more subjective in that the Holy Spirit convinces me, he bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. Then we have a third element here, which is the behavioral element. And this is, what, what does their behavior look like? What are they doing to let you see that there's assurance? This is the assurance gained by the way someone lives their life. The evidence is apparent. It's obvious. It's right there, outward and visible. And I I believe that assurance involves all three of those things. It involves the mind, our cognitive, what we know to be the scripture promises. And we, by faith, receive Christ's word. And we receive his salvation. And we're saved. We know that. But also it's subjective in that the Holy Spirit bears witness with us to let us know we are the children of God. And then third, we also then need to look at the life. Does our life display that we are children of God? Does our life bear witness to the fact that we say we're members of the family? All three of this help us. The cognitive is the mind. The, uh, the subjective is the Holy Spirit. And then we look at the actions. All three of these help us. They're all good. They're all biblical. But our passage here in 1 John is dealing with that third area, behavioral. It's, it's saying, no, it's not about what he, the people know. It's not about what they think or what the Holy Spirit is telling them. No, look at the fruit. Look at their lives. Look at the traits. Because some traits are more significant than others. This isn't just about what team you like. This is about what you look like. This isn't just about where you like to eat. No, this is about your personality. This isn't just about your favorite color. No, this is about how you sound when you speak. These are core attributes. These are core characteristics. And what John is saying is that if you really want to know if someone is a part of the family, then look at their behavior. Look at what they're doing. What does their life say? Well, knowing that, John uses behavior as a springboard to test the relationship. And he, he simply gives evidence. And it's as if he's presenting evidence in a court of law. And the way that I envisioned this this morning is that John is the lawyer and he's in a court of law and he's very le- logically laying out four proofs that a person claiming to be part of the family has a genuine relationship with the father. Four proofs of a genuine relationship. And now I, I, I was up late this, well, last night into this morning driving back from Oklahoma and I got to bed pretty early this morning and got up and didn't have a, a clear mind. And so I had four signs. They were very well made in Microsoft Word. And they were black text on a white page. Very creative. And so I had these four characteristics on my computer, but I failed to print them out. So use your imagination this morning. 
These are four proofs that you have a genuine relationship. And I'm going to ask them in the form of questions this morning. And the first one, imagine that I'm holding up a sign that says, is there obedience? First proof of a genuine relationship is obedience. Look at verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Very clearly, he says very clearly, obedience is evidence of a relationship. Hereby do we know or we do know. He's saying, John is saying, here's the evidence. If you really want to know that someone knows him, here it is, do they keep his commandments? See, obedience is the most obvious way to know that you're a part of the family. It's the most obvious way how closely our actions align with God's word is undeniable evidence of the level of our relationship with our Father. Now, understand, I do know it is possible for obedience to be only external. Have you ever been there before where you're obeying and your, your life is right, but really on the inside you're just doing it out of duty? You're just going through the motions. I know that it can be that way, but John is not asking us to examine everybody else. He's really directing these questions to the reader. He's saying, I want you to examine. Hereby we... Now, notice he says in verse 3, he doesn't say, hereby uh, we do know that they know him. No, he says, hereby we do know that we know him. So what John is trying to get us to do today is to examine our obedience. He's trying to get us to look at our lives. He's trying to get us to see, uh, does my life align with God's word? Is there obedience in me? I don't care what everybody else is doing. It's not my job to judge. It's not my job to examine them. I'm simply looking at my own life. And and using the word we lets me see there should be self-examination here. We must be self-examiners if we don't want to be deceived. And there's a connection here. Turn over, keep your place here in 1 John chapter 2. Turn over to James chapter 1. I'll read three very familiar verses to you, and I know these have been preached uh, even recently here. James chapter 1. It says in verse 22. It's a little to the left of 1 John. James chapter 1 verse 22, it says, But be ye doers of the word... And not hearers only deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. And we're not going to get into this in in real depth today. um, But basically what these verses are saying is you've got doers of the word and you've got hearers only. And if you hear only without doing, the Bible says here in, in James 1 that you deceive yourself. So you, you look in the mirror of God's word and you see where you need to change. But rather than changing it right there in the mirror, you walk away from the mirror and you don't change anything. And the result of that is that you're deceived. And uh, this is a point that our pastor made uh, very often. Uh, Jacob and Curtis would know this there at Bible Baptist where we're, we're all from. He would say very often, the the most prone to deception are the ones who hear the word of God the most. Because we hear the word and we hear it and we're we're, we're very susceptible to hearing it without making changes. And as we hear so much of the word, if we don't change and we don't make the changes we need, then we become deceived as a result. So if we hear the word but we don't do it, we are deceived. 
Those verses are saying we can't operate that way or we, we will tend to deception. And if you don't make self-examination, this is important, if you don't make self-examination a common practice, you will end up deceived. You must examine yourself according to the Word and you say, this is my measurement. This is my standard. How does my life match up to God's standard? Do I obey God's commandments? See, since obedience is is a necessary result of knowing the Father, according to these verses, it follows that you can have assurance that you're part of the family if you're obeying God's commandments. So obedience to Christ is the evidence of a genuine relationship. Obedience to Christ is evidence of a genuine relationship. If a person's life is marked by disobedience to God's word, that's also evidence. And I'm not telling you that that you should come to a certain conclusion based on that. I'm simply providing John's evidence this morning. And it's up to you to compare the evidence of your obedience to God's word and decide where you are. And if we were in a court of law this morning, I would hold up that sign that's so creatively made in Microsoft Word in black letters on a white page, and I would present to you Exhibit A. And Exhibit A is the evidence I'm presenting on whether or not it's a member of the family is, is their obedience. How does my life align with God's Word? That's Exhibit A. But it's not the only evidence that John submits. The second evidence he submits is their consistency. So I'm holding up consistency. Use your imaginations. There's obedience first and then second, consistency. And the word consistency is their consistency between what is said and what is done. Is there consistency between what I'm saying I do and what I actually do? Look at verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. See, one of the most common reasons, and you'll hear this very often, one of the most common reasons people use as an excuse to stop coming to church is that somewhere in their past, they experienced hypocrisy in a past church experience. You've probably heard that before. You know, I was in a church. I used to go to church. I don't anymore. There was hypocrisy. Now, there's really, I have to say this, there's no good excuse to not be committed to the Lord because of what he's done for you. So if we remove all of the other elements and we remove all of the excuses from our lives um, and, and just look at what God has done for you, you would have to say, yes, it's, it, he is worthy of commitment no matter what else I've experienced in my life. I mean, I know that there is hypocrisy and I know that people will do things that hurt you and I understand that. I'm not saying that it's not valid. I'm not saying that you don't feel the effects of it. But what I am saying is if you remove all of the other factors and it's just you and the Lord, that really brings things back into perspective. On the other hand, I mean, we, so we can't justifiably use hypocrisy as an excuse but at the same time hypocrisy is an issue for God's people I'll be the first to say it it's an issue for God's people and you say well how do you why how can you say that so boldly because John dealt with it quite a bit here 
So I'm not saying that I've seen lots of hypocrisy or, or I haven't seen lots of hypocrisy in churches. I'm simply saying the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write in his letter that hypocrisy needs to be dealt with. And if you say you're one thing and you're doing the other, then you're a liar, then we deal with it too. It must be something that we would tend to because pretending to be something that we're not is very often easier than being something that we want to be. So there's no good excuse, but it is a problem because John dealt with it. And John says, he that saith, I know him. This is talking about people that say they have a genuine relationship with God. But remember, since obedience is the necessary result of knowing God, in other words, if you know God in a very real way, then you will obey. Since obedience is the necessary result of knowing God, a person that claims a genuine relationship with God but doesn't reflect that in their daily life, John calls that person a liar. I mean, liar. He doesn't mince his words, does he? He's very direct. A genuine relationship with God will undoubtedly affect our life. And if you say that you know him, and yet your life doesn't reflect that you know him, then John, not me, it is John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that you're a liar. I would never stand up here and call you a name today. I'm simply saying, here's what the Bible labels you. If your life, if you say you know God, but your life does not align with God's word, if you say one thing and you do another, then you're deceiving. So does a lack of obedience mean you're not a child of God? That's not what I'm saying. All children disobey. And if you have a child that doesn't disobey, I would want that child to come hang around with my children. Because all children will disobey. But John is simply presenting evidence today. He's not even, he's not even telling them to what conclusions to come to necessarily. He's simply saying, if this happens, here's the evidence. This is the result. And I'm not even telling you that everyone who disobeys is not a child of God because we're all sinners. But if a life is marked by disobedience, it certainly could indicate a person is not a member of the family. That's what John is saying. And you say, well, that's pretty bold. Well, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 7, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. See, the fruit that's hanging there on the tree is the obvious evidence of what kind of tree is planted. Be careful of saying. So you might say, well, don't be judgmental. And I'm not trying to be judgmental. What I'm trying to get you to do is be self-examine yourself. And I want you to say, how does my life match up with God's word? And am I in the habit of when I come to church saying that I do this and yet I'm really doing that? If that's the case and that's my habit and that's my pattern, then I need to be careful because the Bible says that makes me a liar. Does your walk talk like your talk talks? Have you heard that one before? You say something, you say, this is what I'm doing, this is how I am, and we come to church, and we dress up, and we act righteous, and we act pure, but behind the scenes, when no one is watching, it's something completely different. If that's the case, then we are involved in hypocrisy, and it's a dangerous place to be. The Bible says at the very least that we are liars. We can say, I know the Father, but if I don't reflect his light in my daily life, do I really know the Father? A necessary connection exists between knowing Christ and obeying his commandments. It just does. Disobedience to Christ is evidence that we don't know him. It's plain, it's direct wording, and I'm not condemning anyone today. I'm simply pointing to John's evidence and concluding we have a responsibility to look at it for ourselves, to examine. 
If you have a habit of saying that you obey God's word while living in disobedience, the Bible says we're liars. So I would hold up Exhibit B. I would present Exhibit B as evidence to the court today, and I would say this is consistency. Does what I say line up with what I'm doing? So the two forms of evidence I have so far to, to prove a genuine relationship is their obedience. Second is their consistency. And third is their maturity. Look at verse 5. He says, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So what he's saying here is that obedience is evidence of love. If you obey, it is evidence that as you obey and live your life and continue to obey, it's evidence that you love God. It's evidence that it's not just fly by night. It's evidence that it's not just a flash in the pan. If you continually, continually obey, it's evidence of love. He uses a similar phrase to verse 3 when he says, Hereby know, that, know we that we are in him. It is through obedience, what he's saying is it's through obedience that God's love is perfected. And I'll explain that. Perfected doesn't mean that we're made perfect. Now, someday, if we believe the promises of God, we will be perfect. And we'll have a new body, and we won't have a sin nature. And I'm very excited about that day, personally. But that's not what this verse is meaning, or this word is meaning. The word perfect or perfected means completed. It means to carry through completely. It means finished. It means to bring to an end. You could call it what he's talking about is maturity. When something fully matures, when something is completed or it comes to its end, that's what he's talking about. So what he's saying is the fulfillment of our spiritual relationship is obeying the Father out of a heart of love. That's the fulfillment of our spiritual relationship. And I've used this example before, but I think it's extremely valid. Um, Over in Matthew 22, Jesus Christ says, um, love the Lord your God. That's the first commandment. Love him with all your heart and soul and mind. That's the very most important thing. And what the idea here is that when you're a child, you obey out of force. You obey because you're required to. But as you mature, you no longer obey out of duty. You start to obey out of love. And honestly, if you don't love, then you probably won't obey. And what he's saying here is that our love is perfected as we obey. The, the, the more we grow, the more we obey, the more we learn to love God, and the more our love is perfected. What he's saying is, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the maturity that we, that we should be exhibiting in our lives, is that we are complete, we are mature, we bring it out to its completion, we bring it out to its end, and we live as we are supposed to. That's how a person should have a relationship with God. Out of love, not out of duty. Out of, out of maturity, not by force. Their love for God, not duty, drives them the most. Selfless love for another is the ultimate manifestation of maturity. Selfless love is the ultimate manifestation of maturity. Children have a tough time loving selflessly, don't they? But as we get older and we mature, you start to see selfless love. Just yesterday, I was at a wedding, and uh, we were, I was listening to the vows, and you know, I've heard those vows dozens of times in my life. You know, we can almost all quote them. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. 
Yesterday, as I was sitting there in that wedding, I was thinking about those vows. And I was thinking about the difference in love the day you get married and the difference in love after 15 or 20 years. See, weddings are great, but the love on a wedding day really doesn't touch the love that comes in the years to follow. See, those vows indicate true love, and it's true, and it's real, and, and it's valid, but, it, but when you say those vows, that means that you're, you stop living for yourself in that moment, and you start living for the good of the person that you love. You start living for the good of the person that you marry. And listen, there are some people that have been in here and been through situations in their marriage with their spouse and on their wedding day, they said, yeah, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, amen, let's, we're married, let's go. But it wasn't until 20 or 30 or 40 years later that they realized what those vows started to mean. Those vows, see, it, it, as a young person, we can't truly understand selfless love. And as great as young love is, it's not usually mature love. As we lo- grow and as we submit to each other and as we, as we live with each other and as we serve each other, our love grows to a level of maturity and it grows to the point where it's no longer about me and it's no longer about her. It's simply about each, I mean, it's not a person looking out for themselves, I'm looking out for someone else. That's mature love. The love matures to a point where it is complete and it's evident. And that's what John is saying here. He says, if you want evidence of a genuine relationship with God, then it's not about you getting everything out of God. You can't. No, the the more you obey, the more you love God, the more you mature, you get to the place where you love Him, and because you love Him, you do whatever He asks you to do, because that's the value and level of love that you have for your Father. It's no longer about ourselves. And as our love matures, John is saying that is the evidence and that is what I would call today Exhibit C, maturity. So Exhibit A is obedience. Exhibit B is consistency. Exhibit C, I present to the court today, maturity. And that your love for God drives your obedience. It's not just me doing what I have to do. It's not me just getting by. No, I love God so much that whatever he asks of me, I say yes to. And then the fourth proof, I'll hold up the sign and it says imitation. Imitation. Is there Christ-likeness? Look at verse six. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. See, what he's saying is Christ's pattern for living is the ultimate evidence of our relationship with God. See, to this point, we haven't had specific guidelines necessarily of obedience, but Christ's life was that fleshed out expression of God's righteousness. So obedience to God is a general exhortation, but living like Christ is the specific application. So literally, what he's saying here is that age-old question, what would Jesus do? You know, this is like wearing the wristband. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, to live like Christ is that ultimate test of a genuine relationship with the Father. So when people look at you, when they look at your life, and they look at your actions, and they see your spirit, and they see your attitude, do they see Jesus Christ? 
Christ-likeness is the pinnacle of a mature, genuine love for and a relationship with God. What is your definition of Christ-likeness? We can all have different things that in our minds we say, well, this is what, you know, this is being Christ-like. And we'll say, well, you know, church attendance. I come real regularly on Sunday mornings, maybe not Sunday nights or Wednesday nights all the time, but I come on Sunday mornings and I think that's when Jesus would come. Well, maybe, but I'm not even really sure that's the measurement. Um, Tell me how many church buildings Jesus Christ was ever in while he was here. So I, I think you ought to be at church. Frankly, I think you ought to be at church every time the church meets. But I'm not saying that that is the ultimate example um, because that's not what the Bible says is the example of being Christ-like. We say, well, we'll give and we'll give our money and and we'll give and we'll sacrifice and that's great. We should give. I think that's important. Um, I'm not saying that, but if you give to charities or something like that, I'm not really sure that that's what the Bible says is Christ-like. You hold a position in church or you make decisions in leadership. I, I mean, no, that's good. It's important. If you stay busy and, you, and you're always serving, those are good things. But I'm not really sure that's the ultimate example of being Christ-like. No, Christ-likeness is going through the Bible, going through those Gospels and seeing, you know, what are the characteristics of Jesus Christ? And knowing that our Christ-likeness is not just in what we do, but it's also in the spirit that we have. How do I deal with people that may not have as much as me? Or how do I deal with people that, that are, are bothering me when, I, when I've got other things to do? And am I patient with people? Do I show love to people? Do I have an inner joy in my life? I mean, these are the examples of being Christ-like. Do I live a daily life that shows concern for the lost? Because Jesus Christ lived day after day after day and he walked along those hillsides, walked along the countryside there, and he stopped for every person that he saw. He wasn't too busy for the children. He wasn't too busy for the lame man. He wasn't too busy for the blind man. No, Jesus Christ showed a genuine concern for the lost. So if we're talking about being Christ-like, how does your life compare to Jesus Christ's love for the lost? If we're talking about being Christ-like, then we need to think about our holiness. Being separated from the world. Jesus Christ did not adjust his teaching to the culture. He expected people to adjust themselves to his holiness. So do we exhibit Christ's likeness in our daily lives? Do we have the kind of prayer life that Jesus Christ had? Do we have love for the Father and love for others? I could talk about this forever. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're trying to exhibit what Jesus Christ is like and saying that we need to be like that. But let me just ask it this way. If I compare your spirit your general attitude to the way that Christ did it, is there a family resemblance? If we compare your speech to the speech of Jesus Christ, could someone look at the two and say, oh, there's a resemblance? If we were to take, uh, your, if we were to take your entertainment choices, it sounds like youth camp. I'm not trying to be like youth camp. But we need this too. If we're to take my entertainment choices, the movies I watch and the music that I listen to, if I take those entertainment choices and I compare them to the kind of things that Jesus Christ would have watched, is there a family resemblance? If I compare the way that I dress to I think that the way that Jesus Christ would have me dress, if I compare my patience with other people, is there a family resemblance? See, if you love God and keep his word, your life will look like Jesus Christ's. So I present to you exhibit D, imitation. 
Your life is a reflection of the Savior. We've got four proofs. You've got obedience. Do your actions align with God's word? Is obedience to God's word evident? Exhibit B, consistency. Uh, Is there hypocrisy in your life? Does what you say line up with what you do? Exhibit C would be maturity. Does your love for the Father drive your obedience? Do you do what you do out of duty or love? And then exhibit D, imitation, Christ-likeness. Does your life reflect your Savior? Does your life resemble anything close to the one that Christ lived? If these things are present, you can say with confidence, yes, my life gives evidence of a genuine relationship to the Father. The facts are there, just the facts. But if these things are not present, it may be some time for some self-examination. See, I'm not trying to get anyone to doubt themselves today. I'm simply presenting the evidence John presented. And we must each take some time today to commit to self-examination and decide if the evidence reveals a relationship. Because if you're a member of the family, the evidence will point to it. So the question of the day is this. If you were accused of being a follower of Christ, would your life present enough evidence to convict you? If you were accused of being a follower of Jesus Christ, would your life present enough evidence to convict you? Evidence is the most accurate way to evaluate reality. It both reveals and exposes. It's like weighing yourself. It's everybody's favorite pastime, right? You know, you can get on that scale and you, and you say, I feel like I've lost 20 pounds. And the scale is there to defy you. No, the scale is evidence. There's no, there's no preconceived notions There's no presuppositions. There's no jumping to conclusions. There's no assuming something is correct or something is not correct. You simply get on the scale and the evidence tells you what you need to know, whether or not you like it. Well, today, what I'm asking you to do is put your spiritual life on the scale and weigh your spiritual life. Lay the evidence on the scale And say, is there enough evidence in my life as a Christian to convict me if I was accused of following Christ? And if there's not enough evidence, child of God, then maybe it's time to reevaluate the direction of your life. Because you can live the way you want, but you won't find near the satisfaction or contentment to do your own thing than you would fulfilling your role as an imitator of Jesus Christ. And if you... Don't see the evidence, you may be on the other side. And you might say, I don't see the evidence, and I don't really know that I've ever had a relationship with Christ. Do you know that today could be the day that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? By faith, acknowledging that you're a sinner, knowing that your sin will cause you to be eternally separated from God in a place called hell. And third, realizing there's no other way except Jesus Christ to receive him as your savior and go to heaven and spend eternity with him. That can be your decision today. Based on the evidence, the evidence may say, no, listen, I don't have the evidence there. I know that I'm not even a member of the family. This morning, you can come join the family. With open arms, the Father would welcome you. So you're in one of two categories. If you don't have evidence, then either you're a child of God that needs to reevaluate and self-examine and go the right direction again. 
or two, you're not part of the family, and today's the day to join up. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's stand together. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.